is the abolition as resurrection lent and easter mini podcast series hi everyone i'm camille hi everyone this is gia if you are new to our community welcome we're glad that you found us if you've been with us since the beginning welcome back today's conversation is on transformation healing ourselves culture and society as gia and i brainstormed about the direction and focus of this podcast series we wanted to hone in on abolition as a lifestyle we engage in daily Sarah Lamble in her article, Practicing Everyday Abolition states, part of that task means not treating abolition as a singular or revolutionary event, but as an ongoing process and practice. Abolition is a way of life and a collective approach to social change. Such change means practicing everyday abolition. This connects our efforts towards structural change with our everyday cultures and practices. Everyday abolition means undoing the cultural norms and mindsets that trap us within punitive habits and logics. We are going to have a rich conversation and learn from them on how we can heal ourselves, culture, and society as part of our abolition world. In our Christian tradition, sanctification is defined as the ongoing works of salvation, our external and internal transformation. And so our guest today, who I have the honor of introducing, will help us understand the individual, interpersonal, institutional, and cultural transformation that needs to take place to realize an abolition world. And so today we are joined by three badass women of color who are deeply committed to individual, interpersonal, cultural, and systemic transformation. We're here with Reverend Dr. Nakia Smith-Robert, she is the founder and executive director of Abolition Sanctuary, a bipartisan nonprofit organization, purpose with training churches, nonprofit organizations, and educational institutions on how to lead a faith-based abolition movement that undermines the carceral state and advocates for impoverished Black mothers. And we have Minister Michelle Day. She is an attorney, a restorative justice practitioner, and CEO of Nehemiah Trinity Rising. She has more than 25 years of experience in conflict transformation and is dedicated to healing and is dedicated to the healing of community. And then we have Jeezy Kayanzi, founder of Jesus and Justice. She is a trailblazer who inspires communities to be on the front lines of seeking racial equity and justice, especially for faith-based communities. Gigi, if I mess up your last name, I'm gonna need you to correct me. <laughs> Absolutely, no problem, Gigi Kanyezi. Kanyezi. And so, um, so yeah, so thank you ladies for being here with us today. I want to invite you each just to maybe share a little bit more about who you are and also like why you said yes to joining this particular conversation. Gigi, you want to get, get us started? I would love to. Hey family, it is so good to be with you this morning, my sisters. It is an honor and privilege to share this space with you. Uh, my name is Gigi Cagnesi. I grew up in East Oakland. Um, I'm the daughter of a Brazilian immigrant and grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood, which um, is, is deeply, deeply rooted in who I have grown to be. Um, and this conversation is, is, is so close to my heart um, for a number of reasons. One is because um, a lot of the healing work that I do. So I'm, I'm a doctoral student at Howard University centered, my, my dissertation, my work, my life's work really is centered around healing intergenerational collective racial trauma. And the collective piece 
is really important because that's beloved community. That is beloved community. And when we talk about um, abolition and when we talk about um, uh, healing in community, really that's what it's rooted in. Um, and so when we pair that together with the ideas of resurrection, the newness, the, the centering of rising up rather than the centering of death and torture, um, it brings a whole different framing to the conversation. So I am so looking forward um, to this conversation. And I'll also mention that I spent 10 years in Soweto, South Africa. And um, that changed a whole lot of um, how I think, how I frame the world, um, how I understand, how I engage with people um, and being rooted in a community that um, is based on principles of Ubuntu, which means I am because we are, not just because I am, but because we are. I am absolutely in awe of everyone here. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I came um, um, to join this podcast it was because I wanted to be in the number. <laughs> but um, I come to this calling as um, through really what was a revolution, evolutionary process for me from um, thinking that community peace could be achieved through legislation and litigation and then moving towards, oh, well, perhaps we can achieve it through mediation. And then finally, that realization that transformation, true transformation has to come through relationships that are built through biblical and indigenous practices that are guided by the power of the Holy Spirit. So simply put, you know, it has been a journey for me, a long journey, but one that I'm still on and um, I will leave it there. Wow, I am just honored to be in the room uh, and also in the number uh, with these amazing women who are doing abolitionist work, um, sections of liberation, faith. And so what brings me into this space uh, is personal experience growing up poor um, in Harlem, New York and seeing the ways in which uh, the carceral state ravaged my community. Um, growing up at the height of the war on drugs, which we uh, know that was really a war on Black people, right? Um, so having family members and friends impacted by the carceral state um, and, and the severe policing and surveilling that happens uh, in, in inner cities or vulnerable communities. Um, and then also my research as an academic, um, really wrestling with the theological underpinnings of punishment um, which is informed by my experience. And then finally, the ways in which I apply my experience and research to practical solutions, right? To make a social impact through an organization I founded, uh, Abolitionist Sanctuary. So I'm very much interested through the work of Abolitionist Sanctuary in catalyzing a faith-based abolitionist movement. Uh, and the conversations that we have here uh, very much factor into that vision. So it's it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. You know, when you're like in a room and you, you're you just you're just so in awe of everyone that you're like, am I really allowed to be in here? Like that's how I feel right now. We're like, people would pay to be a fly on the wall in here and I get to be here. Um, but I <laughs> just wanted to say that I'm just so in awe of every woman that is in this room. 
I love the work that each and every one of you do. And um, Reverend Nakia, you said something that I just want to, I, I want us to start off this conversation um, because I'm new to abolition. I, I, I talk a lot about how I want to call myself an abolitionist, but I don't feel like I'm ready yet. Um, and one of the first things I learned when it came to abolition was the term carceral logic. So it's a new term to me entirely. And I know that it's a new term to other people. So I think it's great for us to have a definition of it to create our base of understanding of what abolition is. Can you define carceral logics and its relationship to the Christian tradition, um, maybe in particular around like atonement theory? Absolutely. And you absolutely do belong. And I hope you give yourself permission and liberty to call yourself an abolitionist. Um, and I think that's the importance of this project, that it's sacred work and we don't uh, use the word loosely, but with all of our heart, with all of our being, uh, we want to be committed to liberation. And it, it could feel inaccessible, but you're, you're in the movement, you're in the struggle, uh, and you're acting in solidarity with us. So yes, we are abolitionists. Um, and so carceral logic is um, the ways in which people, systems, uh, rules, laws, policies, center punishment and surveillance um, in ways to invoke fear um, and power and make docile bodies, right? Uh, bodies that will comply uh, to laws, even when unjust, even when unequal, unequally applied. So my understanding of carceral logic is all of the in, inner workings of systems and philosophies and ideas and people who are centering punishment as a way to, to govern, as a way to be in relationship, um, as, as a way to respond um, to, to people who are considered uh, deviant or an aberration of, of dominant norms. So carceral uh, is the carceral state, right? It's it's the, the jails, the courts, the schools, um, any entity that participates in punishment and, and surveillance. And others may want to add to, to that definition. Um, and, and church teachings, from my view, very much reproduce carceral logic. And as far as we focus on uh, Christian interpretations of punishment that are rooted in sin and sacrifice, and you have womanist uh, theologian Dolores Williams who would add to that surrogacy in the context of black motherhood. Um, and so in my own research, I began this work looking at um, which first century crucifixions in the time of Jesus and antiquity resembled the scapegoating of black bodies to the carceral state. And um, I looked specifically at atonement theology, sacrificial atonement theology through Anselm of Canterbury and made the claim that Anselm's sacrificial atonement theology had a hegemonic influence on the ways in which we understood the meaning of Jesus's death uh, for salvific value. And I problematized it because within Anselm's feudal uh, cosmology of salvation, he has this, this notion that there are lords, which are at the upper echelon, and there are serfs, which are the lower echelon, and that the serfs have to be sacrificed in order to restore the honor of an offended lord in the, in the upper uh, echelon. And um, Jesus, for Anselm, is that satisfaction, right? Jesus 
um, it requires um, to be sacrificed in order, in order to pay a recompense society. And I thought that was problematic that someone had to die for others to be saved, right? Um, and later womanist thinkers and feminist thinkers will also problematize the violent nature of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, right? Like why does my salvation, why does my liberation require someone to die when that person is disproportionately the most vulnerable, the black and brown bodies, women, children, right? Um, so that's not salvific. And so what um, womanist theologian Dolores Williams, who authored the book Sisters in the Wilderness, she will say that no atonement theologies are salvific. There is, there is not salvation in the idea that someone has to be sacrificed, that someone needs to die. And instead she shifts the narrative away from the cross to the life and ministry of Jesus and the ways in which the life and ministry speaks to the healing work, the miracles, um, uh, the, the disruption of status quo um, in order to liberate and to save. And so my theology is along the lines of uh, womanist thinkers who are problematizing sacrificial atonement and finding more generative ways to think about Jesus's life and ministry, and also ways that centers the struggles and experiences of Black women's survival. And so Dolores Williams is going to shift from liberation theology and uh, who's going to focus on the Exodus story and Jesus's death and the cross. And she's going to instead look at the person of Hagar, uh, who's an Egyptian slave girl, who is the prototype of Black women who act as voluntary and coerced surrogates, whether through domestic roles, the ways in which we uh, care for others, uh, other people's children, instead of our own, or the ways in which we carry the transgressions of society in ways where society doesn't care for us, right? Um, and so my, my theology um, actually extends Dolores Williams to construct a abolitionist ethic, right? And for me, uh, where Dolores Williams is looking at Hagar in the wilderness, I'm looking at the wilderness as carceral wildernesses. Um, and so, you know, how can we center impoverished Black motherhood and understanding carceral wildernesses that Black mothers are forced to survive in order to secure quality of life? And how do we look at Black women, Black mothers' moral agency as a source of, of salvation, even if it means breaking the law to survive, right? Um, so I'll say more about that, but um, this is the ways in which I see carceral logic connected to atonement theology, why we have to push back on atonement theology because it's violent for vulnerable groups, particularly women's, Black women, and why we need to construct something new, which I do in my, in my work looking at a liberationist and abolitionist ethic of, of the meaning of, of Jesus. That is um, a lot to think about. And I love the way that, that you have expressed it. When I looked at the question, um, I didn't realize how close I was to the conversation that you just um, uh, gave us. But I look beyond the, I, I consider that something has to die. Not someone, but something has to die. With the, the with the resurrection um, 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 mindset, but something also has to be buried in order for there to be any type of resurrection. And I I 
look at um, the reasons why um, Christ came into the world. And I look at the results of the resurrection and I put that into context with what we're fighting today. And certainly came into the world to give us a pathway to um, God through killing off the sins that we were engaged in. Okay, so fine. But when I look at the, the restorative work that we're supposed to be doing, the transformative work that we're supposed to be doing, I put it in the context of what I'm looking at right now. And I think that what we are viewing at this point is um, the fact that the civil war and all that led up to it has not died, has not been buried, and has not had a resurrection. So all of those mindsets that, that gave rise to um, justifying slavery, that gave rise to justifying um, um, using human bodies for our own um, purposes, that gave rise to um, giving names to people that centered them in otherness as opposed to community. All of that has not been killed or buried and has not had an opportunity um, to be um, identified and healed in a way that the death of such ideas would, would, would um, result in or the true burial would result in. During that time that, that um, Jesus was buried, there was work going on. There was work going on. But what we did with both the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act, the passage of the Civil Rights Act, was to say, okay, we've killed this, and now we're going to um, uh, resurrect it in another way without having done the work of appropriate resurrection. So to me, that's what we are living through right now. And I love the, the, the um, discussion, Nakia, of, we have to move if we're, if we're thinking about it in our, um, in our faith tradition, we have to move beyond the death of a body, the death of a person, and move to the death of mindsets and ideas that are not embracing the humanity of every single person. My sisters, you have just unpacked, you have unpacked so much. Um, I love the way that you both have summarized carceral logic. Um, I think one thing I'll add is one particular aspect of what you've already summarized is that carceral logic says that our value, our worth, our character is summarized in the worst moments of our lives. And it should be summarized and captured in the worst moments of our lives. And that should determine our future. That is part of the heart and soul of carceral logic. And, and sadly, almost alarmingly, when you actually begin to look at it, that's exactly what mainstream Christian theology says, actually. Mm -hmm. How many times we hear people preach, sin, sinfulness is our nature, it is our identity. 
I would argue, no, it's not. I would argue our identity first and foremost is where Genesis one starts, which is being made in his image. Yes. First and foremost, we were made in his image before we did something that crossed a boundary that we now call sin. And according to this theological logic that mainstream Western Christianity has become steeped in, uh, our nature is based in the biggest mistake of humanity. Um, and therefore, all the rest of humanity from that point forward is now um, not just tainted, but, um, but, but polluted and really dehumanized. And as a result, there has to be brutality, there has to be torture, not just death, there has to be a torturous, brutal death of someone who is innocent in order for us to be redeemed or, or atoned for. And when you, when you look at it in that light, there is a direct connection between that theology and our carceral system. It, it is one of, of punishment, it's one of shaming, um, and it's one of dehumanizing. And um, the, the, the whole system of, of carceral logic is rooted in white supremacist ideology. Mm -hmm. And white supremacist ideology is rooted in making sure that we identify and find all the ways that people can be othered yes. so that they are one step or 20 steps or 120 steps lower than white, cis, hetero, able-bodied maleness. Mm -hmm. The carceral system is just a part of that. It's a part of, if you have one ding, then you deserve shame, punishment, and dehumanization. White supremacist ideology is rooted in the dehumanizing of anything that is not white, cis, hetero, male, able-bodied patriarchy. Um, and I, I also just wanna mention too that, that this whole idea of race, right? The, the racial, um, I don't even want to say undertones, overtones in our, in our carceral systems. Um, a lot of times we think of race as just ways of identifying and separating groups of people, but we forget that the whole construct of race is rooted in anti-Blackness. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was created, the whole system, the whole ideology, the whole construct of race was created for the purpose of anti-Blackness and for the purpose of justifying slavery. Um, and so I just want to call out, call out the work of the Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas um, and all of her work, but in particular, her book, Stand Your Ground. Um, and what you, what you mentioned, um, my sister Nakia, about um, the connection between crucifixions and um, the brutalizing of Black bodies, right? Um, she goes into detail of that, about that in her book, um, and, and it's what we continue to see today. It's what we continue to see today. Um, understanding that, that carceral logic is dehumanizing. It's also trying to keep us from coming together. As long as we can stay divided among each other, we can never come together to actually uh, reimagine a different system, which is part of what abolitionism um, is, is centering and rooted in, uh, which for me, it's part of why this idea of, of connecting abolitionism with resurrection is so profound. 
we have spent centuries, when I say we, I'm talking about us marginalized folk, have spent centuries trying to reform what was created for the purpose of our demise. But abolitionism, as tied, especially as tied to resurrection, is actually exhorting us to, rather than going back and trying to reform, it's exhorting us to imagine something different. Imagine something to build something that centers us who are quote unquote marginalized in the carceral system. It, 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 is, um, it is kind of Willie James Jennings, this prophetic imagination, right? Of building rather than centering the blood and centering the torture, we're centering the rising, we're centering the newness. I love the fact that this conversation and that the abolitionist movement um, moves beyond thinking in terms of just what would be traditionally seen as a carceral system and moves towards the ways of thinking that isolate and separate um, us because of labels that have been put, the otherness that has been put on. So that that type of broadening of the of, of the concept um, helped me to see Camille that I'm an abolitionist. <laughs> you know that 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 it, it, we're talking about not just getting rid of prisons, not just getting rid of the systems that feed prisons, but also getting rid of the mindsets that allow for those systems to exist, then every day we need to be abolitionists. This is such a rich conversation. Our listeners are going to be so incredibly blessed. Um, I'm taking notes over here. Um, and what I'm hearing you all say is, which is the truth, is that carceral logics is, is rooted in this ideas of punishment, violence, retribution, vengeance, denies humanity. It, it, it doesn't leave room for, um, for accountability, um, for true transformation to take forth. Um, and, so, and so, Michelle, you kind of just led us right into our next question. And so building off of, of what we're talking about here, like um, how have we, we're talking systemically, right? Um, practices and policies, but like how have we individually been socialized to move from these places of carceral logics, even though we don't want to be, right? Or even though we are abolitionists. And so I think part of part of the work is also being honest with ourselves and being aware of the ways that we have individually been um, socialized to, to, want to, um, to want to resort to punishment or vengeance when wrongs have been committed. And so, and so I'd love for you all to kind of talk a little bit about how you see that showing up in like in, like in our individual interpersonal relationships, as well as concretely within our schools, our workplaces, institutional cultures, um, and, and, and even in our churches. I presented a paper at the Society of Christian Ethics um, at a presidential plenary maybe last month and um, was looking at the ways in which educational institutions are reproducing carceral logic and what can we do to make educational institutions sanctuary. And I even uh, shared it with Gia and cited the phenomenal work that she's doing um, as a model of what it looks like to be a sanctuary in, in educational institutions. Um, I, I, what I see is that, so if we look back at the, the design of prisons, it's modeled on schools, right? 
Um, and you have French philosopher Michel Foucault, who looks closely at those dynamics and the panopticon um, that's kind of designed to create institutions around surveillance, right? Around disciplining bodies. And so um, you very much see that in schools, particularly with campus safety. Um, campus safety works with police um, to punish and invoke fear on our campuses. And one may argue, particularly an abolitionist, is do we need police presence in our schools on any level, right? Uh, children are there to learn. How does that make um, our learning communities safe or unsafe? And, and the goal of abolition is to create safety in ways that reduces harm and doesn't rely on punishment. And it doesn't seem, if that was the test, it does not seem that campus safety would pass that abolitionist test. Um, and we've seen, right, we've seen viral videos of um, Black girls getting tossed by campus safety and, and brutalized. Um, Monique, um, Morris has a book, uh, Push Out, that talks about the ways in which Black girls are disproportionately disciplined, suspended within our schools. And, and I've, I've experienced firsthand um, the dangers of campus safety. Um, I went to Fairfield University, which is a Jesuit institution, right? A religious institution. And on a number of occasions, um, I've seen the brutality of the police and campus safety. On one uh, occasion, an African-American man who was a student at the school was waving down help for a tire on campus. He got stalled right at the entrance of campus uh, and police came and campus safety uh, arrived. And rather than receiving help, what we saw was um, what very much looked like a George Floyd on our campus, God, right? Like, um, what, how it ended was a police officer's foot on this student's neck as his head was thrusted into the concrete uh, ground, right? Criminalized um, and, and violently seized. Um, I remember another time where myself and two other girlfriends, Black women students on campus, were waiting for a bus in the rain at night and one of my friends had an asthma attack. And so we called campus safety for help. And instead campus safety arrived, assumed that we did not belong at this white, predominantly white private institution, elite privileged institution and criminalized us, profiled us. And rather than receiving help, they chased us, right? And then called our parents. So, um, we see how this carceral logic is reproduced not only in our churches, but in schools and any institution where there are these power dynamics and this anti-Blackness and hierarchy. Um, and so I, I could um, come back to me and I will certainly um, share, I could share statistics, right? Like from that paper where campus safety are, are, are allowed to have guns on campus. Um, so yes, it is problematic. And then my own daughter's school, K through 12 school, they still have detention, right? That is a carceral model. And it invokes fear 
for my poor 12 year old daughter, where she would rather go outside without a jacket on in the winter than to break the, the dress code of the school in fear of getting detention, right? Like, if, so let's say she left her jacket in a locker that complies to the school dress code, but at home she may only have a denim jacket. She would rather not wear the denim jacket in the freezing cold in fear of detention and breaking uh, the dress code. So it's not healthy, it's not helpful, it's not um, generative in any way when our institutions make their model based on punishment as a response. And how do we help institutions reimagine alternatives that lives out their institutional values, right? Because in none of these schools do they list in their values that they value punishment, right? Their values are saying we're, you know, um, we value community and compassion and equality. So how do we help these institutions live out these values? Because punishment is not it. I actually came to this work um, and by, by this work, I'm speaking to the restorative justice work that Nehemiah um, does, but um, through a community organizing campaign uh, that was centered around uh, addressing the school to prison pipeline that was caused by disproportionate suspensions and expulsions at that time of, uh, in the Chicago public schools of African-American and uh, Latino boys. And um, in, it was in that community organizing campaign that I came to realize the need not just to change the school code, but to change the mindsets. And then as we um, changed the school code and introduced RJ into the system, came to realize that once again, um, you can't really change a system. You have to <laughs> uh, um, get rid of it. And came to realize that what we needed to do was to concentrate our efforts, not just internally with the, with the schools, but with the community, so that the community was demanding the change, so that the community was mirroring the change. And um, the community was saying, get police out of our schools. The community was saying we need more um, counselors in the schools and a lot less um, um, discipline. And, and um, requiring those type of teachers in the school who had the same mindset. Because when you had teachers who um, saw little uh, black children as being dangerous, then they act as though they are dangerous. And the result is, you know, the, the suspension, the expulsion, the um, disciplining for not sitting right in your chair. When um, many people say, let them sit any way they want as long as they are learning. And so it's, it's that kind of, of um, mindset change that is necessary for our school system, for our churches, yes. But also I saw it in the corporate world. Anyone who did not uh, conform 
was isolated, separated, and that was normally people of color, you know, especially black and brown. So I, I, I just say, um, I, I love the fact that you are looking beyond the prisons and looking at our entire society. I'm sorry, I just wanna jump in there. And that is another aspect that we could add to this carceral definition, right? It's the normalization of certain behavior and people. Mm -hmm. And anyone who does not comply to those norms are considered deviant and a social yes. aberration and can be punished and discarded and banished from society. It's a mm -hmm. really, really good point. Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, and uh, this commentary is reminding me of uh, Michael Eric Dyson in his recent book talking about cancel culture. Mm -hmm. and how cancel culture is actually one arm of white supremacy, white supremacist ideology. Um, and it's exactly what, um, what Nakia has just articulated, that when, when they do something that violates some, something that we, uh, as the general public, um, hold as a value, then they deserve to be canceled indefinitely. Um, yeah, so I just, this idea of how carceral logic shows up in our daily lives, um, it is so layered and it is so, we, we are so conditioned and socialized by carceral logic to accept its ideologies that so much of it we don't even recognize. Mm -hmm. We don't even recognize, um, which is why I'm so appreciative of where this conversation is going, that we're actually identifying real tangible ways that it shows up every day. Um, a couple of thoughts here. This whole idea around we carceral idea around we are the sum total of our worst moments or our biggest mistakes or however you want to phrase it. Um, one of the ways that that I live out abolitionism in my daily life, um, and let me pause here too and, and just acknowledge that I love the way in this conversation, we're highlighting both the systems and the relationships. Mm -hmm. Abolitionism is not just about systems, it's also about relationships. Um, and so in relationships with each other, with individuals and with systems too, when we begin to adopt a trauma responsive framework, trauma informed, really what that means where, where the rubber meet, when the boots are on the ground, what that actually means is we view someone's actions, words, behavior in the context of their whole life story, not in one isolated moment, isolated incident as the sum total of their character, but we understand it as um, a part of their whole life story led up, their lives experience led up to that moment um, and this moment that we're sitting in. And I would even deepen that to suggest that when we're talking about being trauma-informed and trauma-responsive, it's not just a person's personal individual life, but it's the generations before them yeah. that, are, that we know for a fact from science are alive in our DNA. Epigenetics tells us that intergenerationally, trauma is passed down. We know for sure at least 14 generations, at least. Yes. 
So the trauma, and, and I would also like to insert here, also the resilience. The trauma and the resilience of our ancestors are living and breathing and active in our physical bodies in ways that we don't recognize. And so when we begin to dismantle, deconstruct, decolonize this thinking that is rooted in punishment, um, that is rooted in carceral logic, you begin to see, wait a second, how we behave, how we don't behave, what we say, what we don't say, how we respond, how we don't respond, it, 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 is, it is in many ways a whole lifetime and generations leading up to that. And when you adopt that framework, it changes the way we see each other. It changes the way we engage each other. And it, it really, um, it makes it almost impossible to embrace this logic of punishment, of just rote punishment. Mm -hmm. um, and together with that idea of being trauma-informed and trauma-responsive um, is also, the reason I inserted also resilience is because when we get into conversations around understanding trauma, um, we can tend to center all of the suffering. So I wanna say here too that for me, being trauma-informed and trauma-responsive, I, I pair it with being asset-based, being strength-based. Yeah. We look at each other and we see our gifts, not just our faults. We, we primarily, we center our strengths and what we bring to our communities, what we bring to the table, what we bring to a relationship instead of all the ways that we fall short because that is carceral logic too. Yes. I want to speak to that for a second. I love the fact that you brought that up because um, there is a movement and has been a movement, a much needed movement towards examining trauma, the interpersonal, the historical, the systemic, the structural, all of it. And that is important for us to move from the what's wrong with you to the what happened to you. Come on. However, there's also the need to look at that movement through exactly what you said, decolonization, a decolonization mindset. There is a um, book, I don't have the, the author's name, but it's called Decolonizing Trauma Work. There you go. You know, because um, once again, we have to be careful about what we um, embrace. And I tend to look for ways to both um, identify and live into those spaces which advance the abolition, the abolishing and the reordering of the current carceral um, mindset, right? But when you look at the fact that we must consider the trauma that people have, have um, encountered, we must consider the assets that they bring with them. The, teaching at this moment or the prominent teaching at this moment um, focuses on the trauma and not the resilience, which tends to um, make people who look like me back up and say, wait a minute, don't label me by what I've been through. 
but not only does it feature the trauma, that it features the trauma through a um, colonizer's lens that doesn't place the soul, uh, what this author called the soul wound of colonization at the center of that exploration of the trauma. And then it also fails to place at the center of the um, healing, both the indigenous and spiritual roots of practices that we know are necessary and, um, and a part of our community. So there is no, the, the, the decolonizing, the, the trauma advances principles that um, encourage self-determination, that encourage community control in the context of healing and not the way in which it has been skewed by those who are um, using the words, but not the spirit of, of this work. So I'm so glad that you brought that up. Thank you. <laughs> That's what I just want to say to everyone. Thank you. Yeah, and I would just say, I would look back to Carl Bell, Dr. Carl Bell. He mm -hmm. did this work 20, 30 years ago and saying that we need to look at what has happened to people and we need to look at what has happened to them going back seven generations. Mm -hmm. Come on, come on. You right. know? Well, even Moses yeah. said the sins of the father fall on the son and last there for four go. generations. Epigenetics is, is in the Bible. It's there. Yes. <laughs> right. It's right there. If I, I can just, I'm, please, I'm yes. If I can just add one thing here um, that, that we haven't mentioned yet is our relationships with ourselves yeah. yes. and, and how much, how we regard ourselves has been deeply rooted in carceral logic mm -hmm. more often than not. And, you know, what, what has been mentioned already is, is the system, the white supremacist ideology and, and the, the carceral system um, of thinking, it is shame-based it is shame-based, which, which is, is deeply devastating to our sense of identity because yeah. it says, so, so it's a system of gaslighting. It's a system that finds a way to blame you when you challenge the system or simply just for existing. It says you are the problem and the ways yeah. in which we have intergenerationally internalized without consciously realizing it internalized the message i am the problem we as a people are the problem and the ways that that comes out is all a part of this carceral system of thinking and logic and when we begin to engage in the restorative practices in relationship to ourselves let me tell you what that right there is resistance that right there is activism that kind of healing is activism. And when we begin to engage that with ourselves in relationship to ourselves, and we begin to really chew on the idea and um, internalize, I am not the problem. Yes. It changes the way we engage in every space because we've changed the way we engage with ourselves. Hmm. It is so true. It's so true. And 
you know, we have like a third question and I, I don't even need to transition us into it because Gigi already started the transition <laughs> bringing this up. But as we were talking about trauma, um, speaking of our trauma, speaking of our resilience and how we have internalized it, um, how we are essentially indoctrinated into trusting the carceral logics to create our own narrative for ourselves. Um, I'm, I'm thinking right now, I'm just going to read this really quick quote, um, cause I'm reading God as a black woman by Christina Cleveland. And it's so good. It's so good. So she talks about like, she's a social psychologist and she'd been doing anti-racist, anti-racist racial reconciliation work for so long. And there is this moment, um, in her mind when she was in, I believe Switzerland, and she was going to be talking about, um, racial structures in America, um, when she had realized that she was just objectifying herself. Um, and what she says in, in her book is, I realized that this was what I do for a living. I try to persuade white people to care about me. My entire career was built on the dehumanizing practice of whimsically and eloquently presenting an argument for my humanity in hopes people would give a shit. Huh? Right. <laughs> and that, and, and like that, that, to me was just a great example of building your like your calling based off carceral logic right there was no i i am human and i'm beloved it is um i need you to understand the trauma of what i'm experiencing in order for you mm -hmm. to humanize me there's really no no connection there there's no there's no root of restoration mm -hmm. in there as as we were all talking about and you know, each of you ladies are steeped in healing and restorative practices. So from your experience, how do we begin to replace our reliance on carceral logics with more humanizing and restorative ways of being in a flourishing relationship with others, um, as well as ourselves and institutions and systems? And specifically, how does practicing abolition in our daily lives dismantle those carceral logics? May I go first? <laughs> yes, um, please, Miss Michelle, go first. Yes. <laughs> well, I spoke earlier about you know looking for and living into those spaces that allow us to identify um, um, places or instances where the uh, abolish abolishing and the the ordering of the, the current carceral um, mindset needs to take place. A part of that is reclaiming that which is ours, reclaiming that which is ours. And um, as I do the work that I do or live the life that I live, I realize that um, what has been termed restorative justice, transformative justice, whatever you want to call it, what has been termed as that is nothing more than the nature and the, the, the practices of how we lived in community with our ancestors. And um, if that's the case, then every day we have to be about reclaiming that work, reclaiming it, naming it, and regardless of the titles that are being used for it, insisting that there is integrity about the work, that there is integrity about um, the practices, and that the practices not just be used as ways of, of, of 
formulating alternatives to incarceration that look like incarceration, you know, but that they are used as transforming the way that we live together, period. That's our faith. That's our tradition. That's, that's all of it in, in, encompassed in one. There can be no othering. You can't um, label me by my skin color if in fact we are living out those practices. If in fact we are living out what our faith requires that, that we are hospitable to each other, that we include everyone in the community, that we are accountable to each other and that we have mercy in terms of in, uh, reintegrating people into the community when they become self-isolated or, or, or self-separated. How do we do that? So that, that, that to me is the reclaiming and making sure that our traditions are practiced with integrity and not just renamed and repackaged. When I think of uh, what it means to kind of the daily practices, what it means to, to embody, it means to embody abolitionism. Um, it is, it's easy for our brains to go into like guidelines. Give me a list of guidelines and what to do, right? Um, if, if I can just highlight that, that is another um, product of white supremacist thinking. What I'd like to suggest is embodying abolitionism is not just a practice, it's an art. It's an art. We take principles and as we move in the spaces that we move in, we have chewed on those principles and we, 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 we discover as we go how we apply them, right? It, it's an art. Um, I think that um, carceral logic is so rooted in isolating as well. It's discard and isolation. Um, and when, when you, I, I am such a neuroscience nerd, I will nerd out. Let me tell you what, when, when you talk about what is most healing for an individual and for a people, it is human connection. And, and I'm not just talking about from, from um, you know, we see this in scripture, we see this in theology. When you look at it through that lens, you see that the whole of scripture <laughs> is rooted in your faith is lived out in community. Yeah. Your faith, your belief in God, we see it in how we treat each other, how we relate to each other, right? But when we talk about science, I love how science confirms what God has already spoken on so many layers. But when we talk about attachment, y'all, I got two amazing, precious, beautiful little boys who are mine by adoption, and so I know deeply the journey through attachment trauma and healing that attachment trauma. And if I can just insert in here, like on a side note, that's not actually a side note, the intergenerational attachment trauma in black and brown communities um, is profound and is a key to our healing, just on a side note. But this idea of the healing the, the healing that happens in our psyches, in our spirits, and in our physical bodies, just from human connection. Human connection, when, when our bodies tell us we feel safe, we feel seen, we feel understood, 
we feel embraced. Your whole body chemistry changes. And the neuropathways, the grooves in our brains that have been formed since we were in the womb that are shame-based, that say you are the problem, that say you are the product of your worst mistakes, that say you deserve to be punished. Those things change. It's the beauty of neuroplasticity. They change because human connection changes them. And when we find ourselves um, regularly in spaces like this one, where we are seen, embraced, we are treated as beloved, where we don't feel like we need to keep the facade or the mask up, we can open up our physical body changes and it begins to mend. Our parasympathetic nervous system, it goes into regulate instead of survival. It goes into what we call rest and digest, which is where the space that your body is in when it repairs. That comes from human connection, human connection. At a, at a cellular level, we hold in our cell, y'all, I'm nerding out, I'm sorry. At our cellular level, in our cellular memory, we hold the trauma of being rejected, of being brutalized, of all these messages for generations and the healing that is possible. This is why the majority of the healing work that I do is not one-on-one. -on -one. I do one-on-one, -on -one, but, it, but it, is the, it is a small amount. The work, the healing work that I do is in communities, it's in small groups because of the synergistic collective healing when we engage in it together. There's something called co-regulation. This is the last thing I'm gonna say when I nerd out on, on science. There is something called co-regulation. When our bodies, which for those of us who are in marginalized groups, especially black and brown women, we tend to live in this space of uh, fight, flight, um, survival. It means our, our, our nervous systems are dysregulated constantly because we're constantly on survival mode. Um, we're constantly having to defend our dignity. We're constantly having to figure out how to stay alive. Hello, somebody. That means our nervous systems are dysregulated. The way that God designed our physical bodies is that when we come into a space with a body that is regulated, our nervous system that is dysregulated regulates off the one that is calm and settled. Now, when you apply that to collective healing, let me tell you something. That is where history will change. If you're familiar with the work of Resma Minikim, he wrote the New York Times bestselling book, My Grandmother's Hands. He is an expert in this. When we create spaces that are safe for one another, where we don't criticize and call out all the flaws, all the weaknesses, all the shortcomings, but we find all the ways that, that our togetherness is centered, then our nervous systems begin to regulate. Our creativity goes through the roof because we were designed for human connection. And if we want to create that kind of beloved community where this kind of healing, which is activism, happens, the dismantling and the decolonizing of carceral logic is part of, it's a necessary part of the process.
I just would like for the record to let everyone know that anytime Gigi decides that she needs to geek out, it is more than welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, my sister. Thank you. Very welcome. Dr. Nakia, I would love to learn from you about creating everyday abolition. Could you, could you go ahead and let us know, um, from your, from where you stand, like how does practicing abolition in our daily lives disable the carceral logics that you see and you study and you so like, just the way that you present this information is, is so incredible. I, I would just love to, to learn your own steps in what you do. Thank you, Camille. I am so full by everything that's been shared. I just went into listening and learning mode to absorb uh, the wealth of wisdom that we have on this call. So thank you, uh, Miss Michelle and Sister Gigi. Um, I appreciate it. And and you guys really said it all. (laughs) And I love the intersectional approaches from our areas of expertise and the the science behind trauma um, and then the psychological uh, entry into trauma. I also wanted to lift up the work of um, the womanist scholar, Tama Bryant. And she has a book called Thriving in the Wake of Trauma, A Multicultural Guide. Um, And she also has a new book that's being released called Homecoming, overcome fear and trauma to reclaim uh, your whole authentic self. And she also has a podcast called Homecoming and she's amazing and an expert in this work around trauma that seems to be at the center of how we're thinking about um, abolition um, and reducing harm. Um, And then in my own work, I have an article called Penitence Plantation and the Penitentiary, a Liberation Theology for Lockdown America. And that deals a lot with Um, kind of the atonement piece that we talked about. Um, It's older research and my theology has since evolved to include more of a gender analysis that I explained um, and that research is forthcoming. But um, people have found that that a a helpful resource of looking kind of at the theological underpinnings of the cross in the carceral state. Um, So, man, so, so much is said. So basically, I, I don't know where to begin. Uh, but um, I, I hear us really emphasizing um, coalition and community and safety. Um, and part of my work as the executive director of abolitionist safety is helping to catalyze this faith-based abolitionist movement so that churches can become agents of that safety. Um, and the ways in which we do that is redressing harms that are done through our church teachings and practices that reproduce carceral logic. Um, so my, so I'll first say that I begin, I enter into the work of abolition, um, understanding it um, as my sister Gigi said, as art, right? Not, not a scientific approach with uh, only one way to approach it, but, but we're creating it as we go along. Um, but, but I also enter into um, this work, understanding that uh, it's coalition building, right? Um, and so I'm looking for, for me, abolition is defined as um, the alliteration of three R's, repair, restore, and rebuild. So how do we repair harms or 
in ways that are reducing harms? How do we repair harms? Um, I heard us talk about the importance of relationships in abolition work. So how do we restore relationships? And how do we rebuild a more just and equitable system? Um, and so that, that is the abolition work for me. And I apply that using five virtues that for me come out of the experiences of poor black mothers who break the law to survive. And we talked about how we wanna shift the narrative where we're not just looking at individual blame without holding systemic um, structures accountable. So how we're not just looking at um, black women's law breaking as deviant, as immoral, as bad and irrational and all those other disparaging stereotypes, um, but how can we see their survival instincts as a source of moral integrity? And if we were to reframe that, then the moral worth that I see in Black women's survival strategies are summed uh, in these five virtues. And these five virtues counter the vices of the carceral state. And those five virtues are compassion, care, creativity, courage, and community. And so I'm really, um, as, as a trained theologian and ethicist, these are my theologically infused virtues that become a practice, a way of applying abolition in everyday life. So I'm an abolitionist as a partner. I'm an abolitionist as a parent. Um, I'm an abolitionist as a theologian, as an ethicist, as a scholar, as an activist, and as a preacher, it informs every aspect of my life. And I apply these virtues in every domain of my life. Um, and, I, and I would hope that if collectively we were to apply these virtues and maybe, maybe we could add others, right? Um, that we can see this way of life as an alternative to retribution and punishment and individual blame and condemnation that we see in our church teachings of sin and sacrifice and punishment, right? That, that we can apply these virtues in our schools instead of detention, right? Um, and expulsions and suspensions, that we could apply uh, these virtues in our parenting. So uh, I'll just end with this one story um, of, of how I became uh, an abolitionist in my parenting. So my nine-year-old son was arguing with my 12-year-old daughter and they were upstairs in our home and I was downstairs and I heard my son say at the top of his lungs screaming, I hate you um, to his sister. And so I called him downstairs and the, the parenting in me, and we talked about intergenerational traumas experiences. So the parent in me wanted to meet rage with rage, right? Um, and, and assert my power and authority to discipline him and to control him and tell him why he shouldn't use this word hate. But I wanted, I was, con I'm convicted as an abolitionist in the same way I'm convicted in my Christianity, right? That abolition for me is my religion because Jesus practiced liberation, right? The, the heart of Jesus's ministry was liberation to set the captives free. Um, and so I told my, my son, you know, we shared about how that caused harm, right? We're talking about the three R's, restoring harms. So we're talking about how, I'm sorry, we start with repairing harms. How do we repair this harm? First, we have to acknowledge that there was harm. You said a very hurtful word to your sister that didn't affirm her humanity, her dignity, or, or the love that you have for her. 
right? So we talked about that harm. And then how do we restore the relationship? What do we do so that when you move from this space that you don't continue toward the divisiveness of hate, but that you can repair that relationship as siblings and within this household building community, right? Building safe space. Um, so we talked about that. And then how do we rebuild? What do we do differently? So that that word is in our first response and that we're aware of the harm that it causes. So how do we rebuild our family system in a way that's, that counters that? And so after having that discussion, we agreed that rather than punishing him, rather than you know saying you're grounded, sending him to his room, taking away devices, all the ways parents exercise punishment, we said, well, since you said you hated your sister, how about going forward for the rest of the day you exercise acts of love, right? Because that meets the harm with something that's healing, right? It, it, it's a match. And for the nine-year-old, that sounds like punishment. What? You mean I have to show love all day long to my sister? But it's restorative and it held him accountable and it taught him ethic, value, right? Virtue, character building. And so when we think about abolition, punishment doesn't work. It doesn't build character. It doesn't make people better. It doesn't heal harm. And so we need to do a new way. And I believe that our faith can map along to abolitionist goals to find those alternatives. Because of Jesus's location in love for neighbor and love for others and love for self and love for God and love for the beloved community, right? Um, and a focus on, on love and justice in the pursuit of liberation. Dr. Nakia, that was such an amazing, tangible, concrete example and way that we can practice abolition in our everyday lives. Um, thank you for sharing that with us. I just, I want to thank each of you um, for just the wealth of wisdom and information and resources and vulnerability that, that you all showed. I feel like um, in many ways you all demonstrated your own commitments to abolition in this in the way that you showed up here. Um, and so I'm so grateful for, for each of you. Um, I think one of the, I mean, very much like you, Dr. Nakia, I'm, I'm full, like I'm processing my, I'm an introvert. So um, I have my, my mind tends to be a little bit more of a slower processor. So I'm sure I'm going to have a, a lot to, to unpack um, as the days move forward. But I think one of the common themes that, that I'm hearing throughout all of this dialogue is that we are loved. We, we experience the fullness of our humanity by being loved into it through community, through community, through deep connection, um, through being seen. And, and that, and, and I think that that like abolition as, as this framework, as a model, as an everyday lifestyle, um, really does deconstruct the ways that carceral logics wants to keep us isolated. Um, this individualized nature of, of being with other people, um, deconstructing the way that white supremacy is so embedded in, in every way that we live in institutions and in our everyday households. And so, and so to our listeners, what I, what I want to share with you is that this is a journey and you will never fully arrive, but it is, it is a creative process it is, it is a way of experimenting with a new way of being. And as you engage in that process, you, I promise, will be transformed. But it will take time. It will take time and, and being in community with people that will see you, that will hold you accountable, that will say, it's okay that you fell, let's get back up. 
And so I think that I just, I want you to leave here knowing that you're never gonna do it perfectly. And I don't think any of us here have ever done any of this perfectly. So just again, thank you all for, for being here and sharing your wisdom. And before we leave, we do have some rapid fire questions um, that we'd love for you all to, to, to leave us with. And so the first one is, what words or images come to mind when you think of resurrection? Hope. New. I had both of those two. Those are two of the first that I came up with as well. But also with those two is birth. Rebirthing. I love it. As a mother, any birth imagery, I'm down. I'm ready for it. <laughs> Hope, new birth, all of it is so beautiful. And I know we've answered this question in long form for our next rapid fire question, but I would like us to answer this one. What is one way that you practice abolition in your everyday lives? What's one commitment that you make that you can encourage others to make? To recondition my thinking and responses away from punishment at every level. I would say the same, but I would also add actively looking for opportunities to do so. Yeah, mine's very similar. Um, it, it is finding, creating ways to, uh, when I engage with people, I am engaging with their image bearing nature first and foremost, mm -hmm. above and beyond anything else. Their dignity. Amen, yeah. Amen. so beautiful. Um, and on that note, what brings you joy and laughter? Family. Trevor, Noah, my children <laughs> and close friends. <laughs> I would say family, definitely, but most of all, animals. <laughs> animals. Anything furry will make my day. That explains your love for cutie. To uh -huh. <laughs> Cutie's my dog, by the way. <laughs> I love it. I love to hear it. Ladies, my cup is overflowing. I got no words. I am just so thankful to have sat here at your feet and learned so much from all of you. And before we finish, I, we have one last question. It will not be long, I promise. But <laughs> um, how can our listeners stay connected with you? Are there social media handles, websites, um, email addresses? How, how can we stay connected with you and the work that you're doing? Uh, we do have a website, nehemiahtrinityrising.org. My family, what a treat it has been. Uh, you can find me on my website, ggonline.org. That's G-I-G-I, online.org. Um, there is a section in there on our Jesus and Justice Village, my organization. Um, the website is in the process. Um, on Instagram, I'm at Jesus and Justice. Facebook, uh, Gigi Kanyezi, K-H-A-N-Y-E-Z-I. 
um, and also Jesus and Justice. Uh, I think that's about it. Email, you can email me as well, reach out at ggonline.org. You can find me at Abolitionist Sanctuary, hashtag Abolitionist Sanctuary. Uh, you can visit my website at www.nikiasrobert.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Nikia S. Robert. That's at Dr. Nikia S. Robert. You can also join our mailing list at our website. Uh, we look forward to anyone who's willing to support or volunteer and join our faith-based abolitionist movement. Thank you. Michelle Day, did you have anything more to add? Oh, I would just, first of all, I, this has been wonderful. Thank you for making this space available for us to meet each other and to share wisdom. Um, there is a conference in Chicago, the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. Conference is July 6th through the 9th. And uh, Nehemiah is the local host for that. And we're expecting people from all over the world, and many of them will be abolitionists. But we are looking not just to um, share wisdom, but to look at ways of implementing this wisdom in our communities. So we'd love to see you there, all of you. Thank you. The website is nacrj.org. And, and so we encourage you um, to, to get connected and get plugged in with these various communities. And also just wanted to share that in our show notes, we will um, also include many of the resources that were shared today by our guest. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you and what you're learning. So please share with us on social media using the hashtag abolition as resurrection. At the end of the series, we want to create a community mural that captures our collective vision of abolition as resurrection. We're looking forward to seeing what we can create and learn together. The abolition as resurrection Lent and Easter miniseries is hosted in collaboration with the Solidarity Building Initiative at McCormick Theological Seminary.